Hello everyone and welcome to Wise Brussels Voices and our series on women and leadership. I'm Ilana Beitel, I'm a member of Wise Brussels, that's Women in International Security, and I'm your host for this conversation with women who are helping to advance our organization's goals of empowering women in the fields of peace, security, defense, and leadership. This new episode, which we are recording on the 5th of May, is once again related to the war in Ukraine, the war of aggression launched by Russia, which is now in its third month. This time, we turn our focus to one of the issues that has emerged as crucial to the broader context of the conflict, and that is energy. More specifically, energy to Europe. The mutual dependence of Russia as the supplier and Europe as the customer of gas, oil and coal was assumed by many to be a deterrent to war. That clearly failed. As a result, the military battles in Ukraine have become overshadowed by a war over energy between Russia and Europe. To understand the situation better, we have as ever with us two excellent expert women, Dr. Katya Yafimova, Senior Research Fellow at the Gas Research Programme at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies, and Olivera Dragic-Gobert, former head of the Green Transition Practice and currently Senior Advisor at FIPRA, a major Brussels consultancy. Welcome to you both, ladies. It's very good to have you here with us. And perhaps, as ever, we can start with what we always do, which is each one of us telling us a bit about their background and career. Katya. Uh, hello, and pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So, Dr. Katya Fimova, working at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. I've been working in energy for more than 10 years now, and uh, my primary topics and areas of interest initially were all the transit issues. So, effectively, I looked at the transportation security of Russian gas exports into Europe via Ukraine, via Belarus, and via Moldova. And more recently, I've been doing a lot of work on the EU regulations. And again, more recently on uh, transition uh, issues, uh, specifically focusing on decarbonisation of gas uh, networks. Katya, if I may ask, before you joined Oxford and possibly before you did your PhD, what led you to this field and how did you end up in it? Well, uh, the interest started from doing my master's when I was doing my master's called MPhil in Russian and East European Studies, which I did at Oxford. And uh, right at the time, there was Belarus uh, transit dispute. And as I progressed to uh, doing a doctorate on wider transportation security issues, it happened as a Ukrainian transit crisis, what you may remember, in 2009, a major uh, gas transit security event took place. So I've done my doctorate, sort of tried to incorporate all of those transit uh, crisis in the post-Soviet space, so to speak. And uh, I published a book at the end of this uh, journey. And it was, uh, you know, at the time when I started uh, doing it, there was sort of a purely academic expertise, you know, and purely interest in this topic. But as time passed by, these things kind of become uh, headlines and they're still in headlines. So it's, that's how it happened. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Olivera, what was your career transition into energy? How did that happen? Thank you, uh, Ilana. My career transition into energy was almost uh, straight from the university in Paris, I applied as a, as a student uh, coming from Serbia um, and just living for a couple of years in Paris for an internship in BP. 
and um, didn't really know a lot about BP back then. It was um, sometime very late 90s and was very pleased that one company accepted my internship. And this was the entrance into the world of energy. Um, I have spent uh, three years in Paris in the Department of Logistics and Supply, and then wanted to do much more sort of government affairs and advocacy uh, job. And I got a great opportunity and arrived in Brussels in 2004. I worked for BP for almost um, 12 years in, in Brussels, and most of my job back then uh, was related to um, energy and uh, specifically gas, um, and I would even go further into sort of gas diplomacy. That leads us straight into this conversation. What is gas diplomacy? Why is gas such a big issue? Perhaps we will start with you, Oliver, by using the very term gas diplomacy. What does that mean? Well, um, I was taught from the beginning in BP that oil is very much difficult than gas, especially back then, that, you know, for gas really to function, you need a lot of connections, you need big pipelines, and you need interconnections. And that means that uh, you often have to work with your neighbors. Sometimes you have um, neighbors that you are getting along very well with, and sometimes it's a little bit more difficult. So in order for sometimes gas to travel hundreds and sometimes thousands of kilometers, it does cross um, a number of countries. And therefore, um, you do really need to do a diplomacy because you are talking to various governments. Within one government, you have multiple ministries. The same in your own company, you have uh, different departments where you know, some understand what it means talking to the governments, some understand less about it. Therefore, you also have to do a little bit of internal work. And of course, when it comes to gas and, and countries, usually where it comes from, uh, very often international companies uh, wish to diversify their risk and then work in partnerships uh, with uh, other companies. Sometimes these companies are national um, host countries, um, very often though. And sometimes these are international companies. Um, so that's another layer of diplomacy. Uh, we can also talk that you do have to also have diplomacy around the communities who live um, alongside that pipeline. And then in my case, I did work on a specific project, South and Gas Corridor Pipeline, where we also have had an interlocutor uh, such as European Commission and sort of more widely European institutions. So if you think of all of that, and I sort of probably forgot some of the other stakeholders in it, uh, maybe NGOs and, and you know many other players, you do have a wide range of stakeholders with, with whom you have to, to have um, serious discussions how to make this gas come from point A to point B. Thank you. Katia, when you look at it more from the academic point of view, do you take all of these issues into account? Exactly. And I very much uh, agree with Olivera that uh, GATS relationship is so much, uh, you know, it's just so much more important for, for successful GATS relationship to, to make sure that the, the countries which are involved in it, supplying countries, you know, suppliers and producers and consuming countries, but also countries in the middle, so to speak, transit countries, they all uh, get along. And if they don't really get along, there's still uh, frameworks uh, put in place which reduce all of those uh, attendant uh, risks. And uh, in gas, why it's uh, especially much more important than it, than it is in, in oil trade, because oil trade, it's 
effectively you know, it's international trade and oil is just you know it's commodity it's it's you know it's almost like commodity like any other obviously it's, it's a very important commodity but still it's really anything to do with oil trade is international trade and that's pretty much you know it's diplomacy in a way is less crucial i would argue whereas in gaps relationship uh, particularly when back uh, a decade there's a lot more concentrated pipeline trade uh, basically trade by pipeline which connected um which is con- fixed infrastructure which uh, connects uh, producers and consumers and transit countries and you know once pipeline uh, is built once the investment decision is made, the pipeline is there and it sort of connects and locks in supply and producer and the transit country in the middle. And there's no other way uh, around it. Whereas uh, with the uh, increasing role of um, LNG trade, so gas as uh, a liquefied fuel, liquefied natural gas, which is transported essentially by gigantic boats yeah, around the globe, that becomes a lot more like an international oil trade. I'm not saying diplomacy is they're not important, but it's it's less important because it's more fungible trade, if you like. It's easier to sort of move it around. Whereas if you have gas pipeline, then it's pretty much it. The infrastructure which brought uh, Russian and previously uh, Soviet uh, gas to Europe built in stages, massive infrastructure, massive corridors, basically which is two jurisdictions in Cold War, um, the European and uh sort of Soviet and slash Warsaw, Warsaw Pact um, countries. And then once the Soviet Union broke down, so you have a multitude of jurisdictions appearing in Central and Eastern Europe and also in, in a former Soviet uh, space. And suddenly, you know, have your, your massive export infrastructure on which a lot of European buyers are relied to a very significant extent. And that's still the case to that date. And then you have uh, multiple um, jurisdictions which you know all of them have their you know own issues of their own or their own types of relationships uh, with their neighbors and then diplomacy has been uh, crucial and um, on many occasions it, it it hadn't been very successful obviously in some occasions where, where it had been successful crises were possible to avoid in some uh, cases things just got out of hand and we saw we saw crisis like like we saw in January two thousand nine, for example. Just to clarify for our listeners, um, why is Europe um, so dependent on fossil fuel, Katya? Well, a simple answer would be that you know Europe uh, has a significant economy to fire and and to, you know to fire up that economy. It needs a lot of energy and Europe just basically short of its um, own domestic uh, resources. So for a long time, it relied on imports of both uh, oil and gas. And by the way, in the future, if we talk about uh, hydrogen, and if you look at the European Union hydrogen strategy, a very significant share of so-called green hydrogen is still supposed to come from from non-EU countries, from third countries. So the simple answer it's shortage of, of its own resource and basically you have to rely on imports but of course you try to diversify your dependence and you, because you don't want to be over reliant on one supplier so you try to have reasonable uh, you know um, diversification and uh, in terms of uh, dependence on imports you try to balance you have to you know you try to have a balanced portfolio 
But again, that's limited by geology. There are certain countries that hold the resource across the globe. Some of them are, you know, if you like, like-minded countries. Some countries are less like-minded. So, you know, you, you have to, as in any trade, you have to deal with countries you have good relationships and some countries you don't really have good relationships for all sorts of reasons, but you still have to find a way of managing it unless you prepare to cut it completely, which hardly is ever, is ever feasible. Mm. Olivera, as somebody who's worked extensively both in industry and with industry as a consultant in, in FIPRA and in other organisations, to what extent do you think industry is aware of these things and is a player and plays sides off against each other, for example? You mean in sort of uh, being independent on sort of a source? Yes. I mean, to a large extent, what Katia is talking about is that you have consumers, you have the countries that also have the resource, but actually the missing link for our listeners is probably that it's largely commercial companies who actually do the extraction and build pipelines or put the oil onto tankers and all the rest of it. So can you explain a bit what the role of industry is in all of this? Well, it's interesting what you say, because if it's not commercial companies, then it's state companies. And I always um, um, remember um, that, for instance, when when I was working in the sort of gas and, and pipeline areas that I was very often asked, so why don't you build a pipeline from this point to do this point? And of course, I said, if we will be doing that, then, you know, we are sort of doing something that... Uh, is very sort of political and geopolitical, but companies are not just doing that. Companies, you know, you know I, I even dream some days um, after this life uh, on, on, on gas pipeline um, on voices of some of the commercial people saying, you know, we have to build a pipeline that is on budget, on time, schedule and everything else. And of course, we will take into account the political considerations but it is important to look in, into that perspective as that. So I think that's the difference between um, a commercial enterprise and a state enterprise that I think a commercial enterprise looks a little bit more <laughs> into the finance uh, cost of a specific um, um, pipeline, but it can be any, any, any plant or any, any industrial site, whereas the sort of the state also lo- looks much more maybe into political and, and, then into, and then into the money aspect of, of things. So I think it's the first thing. And then the second thing, I think um, something that um, we were discussing, like why, you know, we are so dependent on energy in Europe. I think we have just built the society in our economy that is uh, used to have a, a lot of energy. And uh, I think we are currently diversifying it, but we are probably designing different other um, how should I say, industries, for instance, today, we want to build much more um, raw materials in Europe, uh, or to have much more raw materials. So we are maybe saying, okay, we want less of oil and gas, but we want electric vehicles, and therefore we have to have, you know, raw materials uh, produced locally. And also, uh, we have to have access to those raw materials around Europe, that we also need. So I think, you know, uh, very often we build our own dependencies. Uh, We very often just look into things um, one way instead of holistically. That's maybe another answer why we sometimes we are not able to do the mix of things because it's very complicated to do the mix. I think that you're absolutely right about that. Um, And I think that, you know, what we've already potentially for our listeners um, reflected is it's so much more complex than simply extracting gas in one place and using it 
somewhere else. Um, when you, Katya, are looking at transition issues, and we will get to the war in a minute, um, how much do you understand or figure in, configure in the role of industry? Well, I think companies, of course, will have to be involved very much because, you know, it's 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 very clear now that if you look at the EU decarbonisation uh, targets, you know, net zero 2050 and also targets for 2030, etc., you know, it's a very firm resolve on a political level and now with the um, legal uh, foundations for that as well as a climate law it's very clear that gas will have to adapt gas will have to decarbonize like there are various uh, chemical processes that allow to take uh, co2 out co2 out of this gas and gas becomes decarbonized and uh, companies which are involved in the gas business they would understand that the time horizon for gas is uh, limited and ultimately in Europe it's I would say in Europe it's more limited than outside Europe because Europe pretty much been leading with its uh, commitments for, for net zero and it's serious about it and Asia probably will follow but with a time lag because for, for them um, maybe other issues are more urgent or transition is sort of uh, less affordable or not at such top of the agenda, but it's it's getting there. So green agenda is really becoming um, important across uh, the globe and companies uh, will have to sort of reinvent itself as how to keep pace uh, with that and how to move on beyond, beyond gas, if you like, how to decarbonize. And at the same time, it's very clear that energy transition, you know, can't happen in sort of one giant leap forward, so to speak, you know, it, it, it just take uh, time. And uh, meanwhile, while, you know, the process of energy trans transition ongoing, the governments, they still have to keep the lights on, etc. all these things. So, you know, you can't just do it as a switch. So, and uh, underlining the whole energy transition, you, you still have to have uh, gas in the system. And you have to, you know, you, you kind of have to manage that business uh, running while at the same time sort of you know decarbonizing it in tandem and of course you can't do it without industry yeah is it fair to say that events in Ukraine the war in Ukraine are going to galvanize this and make it an even quicker transition I think events in Ukraine are likely to confirm specifically in Europe that energy transition will have to be uh, accomplished its implementation, the affordability of doing so, it has been uh, reduced. Why? Because, you know, now Europe kind of made a political commitment of phasing out uh, Russian gas. I, I think I'll just quote from the Versailles Declaration, the commitment is to phase out. Uh, I think the phrase is used Russian gas um, as soon as possible. And I think the European Commission's uh, power uh, EU just communication that the power EU even says uh, reduce independence on Russian gas by two thirds by the end of this year, which to me is just like just unrealistic if you, if you really want to be uh, frank about that. But what it underlines that the ambition and the resolve to do so it's there. So Europe will try to to do as much as possible on on that front. But it's quite clear that it can't be done in one day. But it's also clear that there is that we're now living in the environment of high gas prices. And we're also living in the environment where Europe is sort of, you know, 
scout the world trying to find, you know, all sorts of LNG available pipeline supplies for all the other suppliers other than Russia, uh, etc. That's also, by the way, putting a price pressure for, for other consumers outside Europe for whom gas becomes more expensive because the market is global. It, and also, as Europe tries to reduce uh, demand, it also, you know, might temporarily introduce, again, oil and coal in the mix, which, you know, has been, you know, phased out, etc., etc. It just, just can't do without it if it really wants to phase out Russian gas quite so fast. So what I'm saying is that ambition to become green, so to speak, uh, is still there. But the immediate issues, the immediate urgency so about greenness and, and the rest of it, I think it's it's going to take for, for some years, a couple of years, few years, um, a bit of a backseat because security of supply has now sort of front uh, and center. And it's just, you know, you can argue it can both be done at once, but clearly that, that's very difficult and it's just very urgent crisis Europe is trying to deal. But again, here it's important to see how that's going to be managed because one's got to be realistic, you know. Europe might want to reduce uh, dependence on, on Russian gas, but at the same time, it has to make a judgment on in doing so, how much other other parts such as sustainability and you know financial viability, price um, environment compromised by by doing so? If you just do all of it just so fast, Olivera, you've been at the head of the green transition uh, uh, practice at FIPRA. You've been in industry also for a long time. Do you think industry is really ready for this? Do they know how to make this transition? Are they interested in making the transition? Well, I think, you know, <laughs> in a question like this, probably, yes, there, there are those who are interested to make a transition who already started um, on time to make a transition. And there are others who are uh, maybe less interested or less able to do a transition just because of the of the sites um, the comp- different companies have, whether they're chemical plant or refinery. Some are very new and modern, very often in Northern Europe. Some, some are less modern and very often in, in, in Southern Europe. So again, uh, the question is to what extent uh, there is a financial, um, I would say, incentive to do that, uh, even though if there is a sort of climate um, uh, need to do it, and maybe if um, even if business and people within companies very often, they push the leadership uh, to, to, to do certain things as well. But again, it's... It, it, Often depends whether there is an interest to do that, as you said, and whether there is enough uh, financial means to do it uh, in a given time, because we always say that, you know, time is really uh, running. So again, just going back to the question um, that was just discussed, I would also say that, of course, so far, the climate was the number one priority and number one threat and risk and everything else. Now we have different situations. So I would agree that once the different decision makers think about all these issues holistically, there will be a, a sort of a right uh, way to do it. Uh, the only thing is sometimes it's not easy uh, to make uh, wise decisions while uh, we are in a situation, in a given situation. So sometimes we can make a decision short term, I would say for this situation, one year, another um, decision for midterm, let's say to five years, and then a long term, um, whatever, 20 or up to 20, 2050. But very often these decisions are again uh, retold because there is another political context which we don't know what will happen next. 
No, and staying with industry, but actually on the war too. Uh, BP was a company that um, had a lot of problems in Russia, made a lot of money in Russia, but also had a huge amount of problems there when, in effect, um, Rosneft tried to take over the BP uh, uh, enterprise there. Um, The reason I'm raising that is not only because you worked in BP, but we've had signs over the years that Russia is maybe not uh, the reliable provider uh, or resource that it was, for example, during the Cold War. As you pointed out, Katia, in 2009, there was the first cut of uh, um, energy. There was the issue with taking over the BP enterprise in, in, in Russia. Why do both of you think that this was all sort of dismissed somehow as a blip and we can just get through it and Russia will be fine? Russia will be fine and we can carry on relying on it. Olivera? Well, you know, uh, my immediate uh, thing, uh, thinking is that, uh, you know, Russia is the neighbor and uh, big neighbor to Europe, to a lot of European countries. And I think it's it's probably the main reason why, you know, the, sometimes it's more difficult for certain countries who have a really a border with Russia to maybe you know, stop buying the Russian gas or stop buying the, the you know, different products uh, just because we share the geography. And I think uh, we now live in a specific moment. Uh, but again, you know, in, in 200 times, this will be a very small moment in, in, in a history, even though important moments also, you mentioned some others. So I think it's just very difficult when you share borders to to maybe make decisions that that are kind of, look easy or to sort of get rid of something. Interesting. Katya, what do you think? I'd like to uh, repeat what you said in terms of Cold War years as well in the post-Soviet period, because really uh, Soviet and then Russian gas supplies to Europe uh, really uh, were impeccable, you know, and that's everyone would say, people who don't like high dependence on Russia or or do like it, everyone would say that's an impeccable uh, record. In terms of the Ukrainian incident, that really was the crisis in 2009 when no Russian gas uh, flowed across Ukraine into Europe for two weeks. So I remember and done a lot of uh, work and research at the time on that. My personal view uh, is that it really was a commercial dispute over unpaid debt and gas siphoning and all things and you know debt you know, running up in hundreds of millions that really just went wrong. My view that ultimately uh, down it was a commercial dispute for all sorts of reasons, including political, that got uh, out of hand. Commercial dispute that got out of hand and caused uh, that incident. So, you know, I didn't see it as sort of a weapon. And I've done publications on that, which kind of looked at, you know, the months preceding to the disputes. And you can point several junctures on on the road where things could have gone differently because of our various uh, political issues they they didn't go uh, that that way but ultimately that wasn't predetermined that 2009 crisis uh, you know wasn't bound to happen it just happened um, because of all these issues are impossible to uh, resolve and uh, also as Oliveira said in terms of um, relationship uh, with Russia, gas relationship with different countries. 
certain countries, specifically in the Baltics and also Poland, they have made it very clear that they were trying to reduce dependence on Russian gas as soon as possible, as much as possible. And they've achieved a lot of success in doing so. And that was their political decision. And, you know, grounded in, in, in difficult history, etc. At the same time, if you look at countries in the Southern Europe, countries in the Balkans, you never quite seen the same, you know, attitude towards Russian gas as you've seen in, in the Baltics and, and Poland, also due to different history and different uh, history of relationship. So there's no really one size for all, but also ultimately for the entire EU, as the internal gas market has been built, with, you know, there are lots of interconnections being in, in place so that countries which wanted to reduce our dependence on Russian gas were able to do so. They were able to source their gas from elsewhere. They put in place uh, LNG terminals, as I said, this liquefied natural gas, and they've reduced their dependence to, to a satisfactory degree. And overall, the European Union's resilience has increased very much after 2009. And, and the big thing, of course, is that Russian gas effectively, geographically, it's next door, with a lot of uh, expert infrastructure being oriented towards Europe. And this gas is basically very cost uh, competitive. And that's also another reason why dependence is quite significant, it's about 40% of imports, but different countries have different attitudes towards it. What's going to happen next, I know now and going forward, that's of course a big, uh, big open question. Indeed, and moving towards the open question of the end of our podcast, looking ahead, clearly Russia in the short term is going to make some money because, as we've all said, the prices of energy have gone up. So whatever it does ship, it makes more money on simply because the prices have gone up. But in the medium to longer term, it's fair to say this is going to be a big hit on Russian capabilities. Um, because, and here, Olivera, perhaps we can look at your practical experience again. If all the pipelines are going towards Europe, Presumably, it's much more hard to diversify, for example, into Asia. It's not something that you can just do overnight. Again, it's very much, uh, I would say, depends on when um, we will resume, uh, how we will resume, what will be resumed and what different countries in Europe will decide to do. This all, of course, uh, in the context of um, a lot of social pressure post-COVID, a lot of economic um, pressure in Europe itself as well. Um, a lot of political changes in some countries. And again, the, the wish to really change the relationship um, with, with a specific country. And again, as, as, as Katja mentioned, you know, when you create um, or you get rid of one <laughs> um, dependence, you create other dependencies. You know, what are the right dependencies? Um, I think this is the right question as well. But you are suggesting to a certain extent that you see somewhere in the future a renewed relations, energy relationship between Russia and Europe. Again, I mean, when you share the geography at some point, it's just natural that you will work together, whether it's in 20 years or 50 or in five, honestly, depends on many, many, many factors. Katya, do you agree with that? Uh, yes, I very much agree with that. And on, on the point of um, expansion and diversification towards uh, the East, uh, so to speak, it's been uh, happening for some time, just as Europe, you know, way before 24th of February, started to look how to diversify from Russian gas. Uh, it, Russia also, you know, kind of understanding European desire, kind of, 
not to be so dependent on Russian gas, also started uh, looking uh, east. And it has done investment in infrastructure towards the east, uh, both uh, in LNG. It does export uh, gas as LNG, uh, mostly to Asia, but it also built a pipeline connection to China and Pan Siberia and already started gas supplies uh, to China. And there is also a, an agreement to, to build power of Siberia uh, too, across Mongolia, also into China. And that pipeline you know, is supposed to connect uh, the producing fields in the Yamal, Western Siberia and Yamal Peninsula, the same group of fields, which also feed European exports. So, you know, it's not impossible in, in 10 year time to see Russia replacing big chunk of what it is sending to Europe towards Asia, but half from all of it, half from all of it. And, and it takes time and a lot of question marks on the road, uh, obviously, but it's probably going to be more balanced relationship in terms of, of what will become of uh, Europe-Russia gas trade. It's extremely difficult. I don't think it's 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 likely that we'll see business uh, as usual, so to speak. I think that's extremely difficult to see. But some uh, relationship, uh, I think, um, will survive. But again, the big factors, one is how the Ukrainian crisis is going to be settled. It's going to be sort of, a, you know, a speedy resolution through negotiated settlement sometime soon, or it's going to drag on and on and on with, with hostilities. And I think it's, it's very much important which way it's resolved. Uh, the implications it will have for gas trade, including for all sorts of economic um, relationship, you see some kind of normalization. But, you know, any any of it is really uh, quite difficult to predict. And second factor, which is um, is what we've started from the, the energy transition, because Europe is very serious about you know, really phasing unabated gas uh, out from its balances and it's it's you know it's in in, in all policy initiatives it's it's now in legislation etc so gas you know whether it's russian gas or somebody else's gas it, it has now a limited future in in europe and you know ironically if russian gas is being phased out it's not good news for other producers of gas globally they might benefit in the short term because now high you know gas prices high and you know lng producers can send more and, and more expensively but for a limited period because also the faith in in gas uh, as imported source is being further undermined at least uh, in europe asia may, may be a different story but in europe that that's also a big uh, factor so you're going to, to take hostage not just russian gas but everybody else's as well well, thank you both very, very much for a fascinating conversation. Um, that's a wrap on this episode of Wise Brussels Voices. Thank you so much to our guests, Dr. Katya Yefimova and Olivera Dražić gobel We'd also like to thank our technical team at Free Range Productions. Please continue the discussion with us at Wise Brussels on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. And if you haven't done it yet, subscribe to Wise Brussels Voices and listen to all our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast application. Learn more about Wise Brussels on our website, wise-brussels.org. I'm Ilana Beitel and with me is Florence Ferrando. Thanks for joining us and stay tuned for more great conversations. <laughs>